This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let us pray together. Oh God, once more, as we open your word together, we ask for your help, that you would attend the speaking of your word, that you would help me to speak clearly, and that you would make it plain and, and dear to our hearts. And we ask that your name would be exalted. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, it is my privilege to be able to be here this morning and to open God's word with you all. As I was reflecting at reading the Bible the other, the other morning and reflecting on our time together, uh, I came to Psalm 13 in the beginning, and I thought it was an appropriate way to start. In Psalm 13, the psalmist asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? Will you hide your face from me? And I, and I wondered how often, perhaps, you might have, have thought and said those words to God. I think we all do every now and then. Maybe it comes for you every now and then. Maybe, maybe it stays with you, that, that question, as a fog, sort of, in your mind for, for years. We look around around us, we see the brokenness of our own lives. We see the brokenness of, of the world that we live in. 
And we, we ask, how long, O Lord? We feel the weariness of the world and our hearts have been tempted and I would, I would venture to say all of us also succumbed to doubts here and there, sometimes for seasons. And jumping right in this morning, I'm not sure where, where you are this morning. I'm not sure where today finds you. Maybe, maybe all is well, all is great, and that's, that's great. Praise the Lord. Uh, but maybe, maybe you come this morning struggling. Struggling uh, at home, struggling at work, struggling with your parents, struggling with your kids, struggling with trials, with, with health, with plain old, plain old doubts. And uh, you're not sure if this Bible stuff is real. You're asking what's going on in the world? What's going on in my life? How long, oh Lord? And I wanted to share with you this morning uh, a favorite passage of mine. Uh, this comes from a previous study I'd done in the past that I wanted to, to revisit and share with you all. And it's perhaps from an unlikely source. The encouragement that I want to offer you this morning perhaps comes from an unlikely source. It has to do with the, the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I find this topic fascinating and also very encouraging. Hopefully it's more than fascinating, also encouraging. But the way that the New, the, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and the depth of meaning that that provides to us is sometimes surprising and often very encouraging. Um, as we heard uh, from Tony last week, that, that the plan of God often unfolds not in a straight line. And that's as true as it was for, for, for Ruth, and in our individual lives, it's also true on the grander scheme of things. Uh, the way that he promised things get fulfilled in a way that we might not always expect immediately, but are always more glorious and, and better. Uh, and we learn, as we look at it, we learn that the coming of Jesus was not just a blip in history. The coming of Jesus was not a new thing. The coming of Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of a very old thing. And we learn in this that God is always at work, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, and his salvation is as certain as the reality of Jesus of Nazareth in history. And this is encouraging. And the Gospel of Luke helps us. The Gospel, I, I just read from Isaiah, but this passage in Isaiah gets quoted in, in the Gospel of Luke in the, in the first couple chapter in chapter three. And uh, the, the beginning, the introduction of Luke to his Gospel, the first few chapters, uh, more than the other Gospels, goes to great lengths to, uh, to tie the coming of Christ to the Old Testament hope. In, in Luke beginning chapters, he wants us to know that Christianity is not a sect. It's not a branch off of Judaism. Christianity is the rightful heir and the continuation of the faith of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope, the climax of history. And that's what I hope to try to demonstrate. As Luke quotes uh, in doing this, he, he quotes in chapter three, Isaiah 40, about John the Baptist, who you may or may not know much about. Uh, it's a familiar verse to some, to many maybe. And I think it's one that we often skip past though. Uh, and it, but 
in quoting that verse, he connects the coming of Jesus to this grand Old Testament picture of, of salvation in Isaiah. I used to think of that verse, and, and in my head I was imagining maybe Luke, or they just kind of opened up a concordance, found the word wilderness, <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's John the Baptist. It talks about a wilderness, but it's actually far more significant than that. Um, so we're going to dive into Isaiah, okay? That's why we're in Isaiah chapter 40, and uh, I hope to see what he's saying in context and bring that to you. I hope it's, I find it profound and encouraging, and I hope you do too. Okay, so we're going to look at three things today. The context of salvation, the way of salvation, and the joy of salvation. And the main thing that I hope we, we grasp from this this morning is that God came to save us in Christ. God came to save us in Christ, and nothing will stand in his way. Okay, nothing can or will stand in his way. So we begin, point one, the context of salvation in verses one to two. Uh, we're starting off here in the book of Isaiah, like in the middle. And so we, we have to orient ourselves a bit and ask, where are we? We're in Isaiah chapter 40, which is a little bit past halfway in like a very big book. And so what's, what's been going on in Isaiah? You can kind of break it up into two halves. You have the first half of Isaiah, and you got the second half. The first half is chapters 1 through 39, which largely focuses on judgment. And then chapters 40 through 66 focuses primarily on the promise of salvation. Uh, it also contains some verses that we often quote at Christmas time, right? <laughs> um, but in the first half, it, talks, it is primarily reprimanding Israel for their unfaithfulness and warning them, pronouncing judgment. And then chapter 40 begins where we are, begins the second half of the book, which primarily focuses on promises of salvation and rescue. So you may say the first half is, is holiness, and the second half is glory. And, and this verse that we're on, chapter 40, is the hinge between those two halves of the book. And, and the context of where they are here in chapter 40 is exile. Exile bit more history of where we are in, in the history of Israel, right? You had the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and it was in, split into two kingdoms. After King Solomon, you had the northern kingdom, and you had the southern kingdom. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom, and he had a significant tenure. He was there for quite some time, like four kings. Uh, he, so Isaiah is where Isaiah was. Uh, during Isaiah's time as a prophet in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom got taken away conquered by Assyria, like they never came back. Um, that happened during Isaiah's time, and Isaiah is here to warn the people and say, if they continue in their way, if they continue to abandon God, the same thing will happen to them. They will also get taken into exile, into captivity. So fast forward, a hundred years after Isaiah, that happened. <laughs> they continued on their path, and God took them into exile. God had waited and waited and pleaded with his people. He had sent prophet after prophet, but they continued to go astray and they abandoned their covenant with God. And so God cast them out of the land into Babylon, very far away, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God said, go to your room for 70 years, <laughs> except there's no devices. 
or games or books in that room. They were, it was more like go mow the lawn for 70 years. And it was, it was very serious. Um, they, they abandoned the glory of the incorruptible God for images, just like we do. God means for us to see ourselves in that history. And so that's 100 years ahead of Isaiah, but here in chapter 40, we actually have to jump forward even more in time to the end of the captivity. Isaiah here in chapter 40 is speaking to a future Israel at the end of their captivity. So 100 years after Isaiah, they were gonna get taken away, they're gonna stay there for 70 years, and then God was gonna rescue them back after 70 years. And these words are spoken to those future people. This is comfort for the future in exile people of God. It's like he sent a time capsule into the future so that the people of Israel at that time would be able to read this letter and be comforted and understand God's mercy. Does that make sense? Lots of dates, and it's maybe confusing, um, but how amazing is that? They hadn't even gone into exile yet. God had, hadn't even sent them away, but he had already prepared for them the words that he was going to use to encourage them uh, when it was done. He's already prepared the words for when they come to, which tells us where the heart of God is, and not in the exile, it is in, it is in the comfort. Um, exile is real. This is the consequence of sin, is that we get separated from God, but his desire is to rescue us. So that's the context, exile. Uh, imagine you are an Israelite, you were born in Babylon, You've been in Babylon your whole life. Your parents, your aunts and uncles, they always tell you about the good old days back in Israel. And you, you've heard the stories and you've known your whole life growing up that you live in this foreign land because of sin. And your life is a consequence of sin. And you also know that it's been about 70 years and the time is coming up and you're about to be brought home. And so, you open up the scroll of Isaiah and you go to chapter 40 and you read these words and what does it say? It says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her hardship is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. The exile is over. You get to come home. And that's, that's the basic message <clears throat> that God is saying here, that it's time for comfort. God is pardoning you. <laughs> and he, said, he calls this salvation. We call, we call this salvation. Uh, for them, it was, it was a rescue. It was an actual rescue from an actual Babylon. <clears throat> but as we read on in Isaiah, we find it's much more than just bringing them back from Babylon. Isaiah is not talking about returning to how things were before. He goes on to talk about an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, an everlasting kingdom of peace with God himself dwelling among them. Isaiah 65, he talks about a new heavens and a new earth. So this return from Babylon is even further a picture of the future, final, end of the world as we know it, salvation when Jesus comes, the, the end of the world, the end of time, when God rescues his people 
and brings in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the context. Exile. We too, all by nature, are cut apart from God, separated because of sin, and we face a destiny of being forever separated from God, and we need rescue. We're in exile. It's desperate. We need rescue. That's the context. We move on to point two, the way of salvation. The way of salvation, verses three through five. I'll read this again. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So now that we've seen the backdrop to these verses, these are the verses that I think are, we commonly maybe read past. And I, wanna, I want us to dwell on them for a little bit uh, because he, he talks a lot about this highway. And I wanna ask you the question, what does the highway mean? You may be tired of hearing the word highway by the time we're done, I apologize. What does the highway mean? We may think we know what this means, but it's not immediately clear if we start to dig into questions like, what is this talking about? Who is the voice? Who is the voice talking to? Why does he mention the wilderness? Where does the road go? Who's on the road? the questions to these things aren't, aren't immediately obvious to us. And so I want to start with what we know. What we do know is that the key figure is the highway. Verses 3 through 5, the key figure here is the highway. We have a voice crying out to make a straight highway. That's the point. The highway is in the wilderness, and the, the voice says, make the highway straight no matter what the cost, no matter what obstacles you run into. If there's a mountain, just go ahead and flatten that thing. If there's a valley, go ahead and fill it in. Just, just you know, simple. And just make a, a straight road through the wilderness. There's going to be a road. It's going to be straight. It's going to go through the wilderness. And it says, on that highway, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. The God of Israel and all flesh will see it. Okay, that's what he's saying. And I want you to think with me about how supernatural this highway is. This is not a normal highway. Uh, I don't know if you've ever dug before, done much significant digging of dirt in your life. Uh, My wife likes to laugh at me. I I am called the diggingest dad. I don't know if you're familiar with the children's book, The Diggingest Dog. Spoiler, there's a dog. He doesn't know how to dig, he learns how to dig. He digs a lot, okay? Uh, so that's me. I'm the diggingest dad. I, I have a, a hill at the back of my backyard that I, I dug into a flat spot to put a shed. Uh, and if you've been with an earshot of me for the past three years, you've probably heard about this before. Uh, so I, I've dug a lot, and it's only 120 square foot, little shed, but man, it's a lot of digging. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there's a lot of dirt in the world, like you, you dig, and there's just so much of it. it, it 
it doesn't go anywhere. It just explodes. Like, you can't put it back in the same hole that you put it into. I don't know how that works. Um, but I've come to appreciate dirt and ground in a way that I, that I hadn't much before. And can you imagine clearing Mount Diablo out of the way? Like, we're going to build a highway there. Oh, there's a mountain. Clear it. Or a valley. Sandy and I went to uh, Carmel Valley recently, this narrow little valley east of Monterey. And just imagine filling it. Make it flat. Yosemite Valley. Just go ahead and flatten that out. Impossible. Israel, too, had some non-trivial valleys and mountains. It's not the Great Plains over there. And so what God is talking about here is a supernatural highway. He says uh, in verse, verse 4, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill be made low. Another thing we know, looking at this, is that God is the one traveling on the highway. I want to suggest that God is the one traveling on the highway. It says his glory will be revealed. And Luke quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it says his glory will be revealed and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so connecting some dots, we see that God, I, would, I think, is the one traveling on the highway. He's coming to Babylon to rescue his people and he's gonna bring them home back to Jerusalem. So he's traveling there to them, and then he brings them, and then they travel back on it, back home to Jerusalem. That's why it goes through the desert. And so really, God is the one making the highway. God, no one else can flatten mountains. No one else can level valleys. Uh, and so the voice here becomes something like a decree, a prophetic decree, kind of like God saying, let there be light, and there was light or more closely, like God saying to Ezekiel, remember when Ezekiel spoke to the, the Valley of Dry Bones and he said, live, and they lived. This is the prophetic voice announcing a supernatural event and then God bringing it about. The voice declares what God is going to do, prepare a supernatural highway on which he is coming to rescue his people. So that's the point. Of, of the highway image, is that God is coming to save you. God is coming to save you. He wants his people to be comforted. Their hardship is over. He is extending mercy. He is coming to rescue them, and nothing is going to stop them. If you would uh, humor me a little longer, let's turn to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, I want you to see this highway image a couple other places in Isaiah because it really just deepens it. I'm gonna read these, they're a bit long, but Isaiah 35, one through 10, he says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Doesn't that sound a lot? like the ministry of Jesus right there? 
and what Jesus said to John the Baptist when he wasn't sure if he was the Messiah. Keep reading. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunts of jackals where they lie down. The grass becomes reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. One more, Isaiah 62. Many parallels we heard there from, from our passage. Isaiah 62 is another one. Verses one through five, he says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep quiet. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not or be, keep silent, be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jump to verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, cleared of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, now here he quotes Isaiah 40, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him his recompense before him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called a city not, or you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And there's others, but we'll stick with those. This highway theme throughout Isaiah is deep and just so wonderful, amazing pictures there. And this picture of the highway, God coming to rescue his people, God rejoicing over his people, God seeking them out, God not forsaking them. We come to Luke. Now, if you would turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter three. Luke 3, verse 4, or verse 3. John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the, given, for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes our passage. Other gospel writers also quote Isaiah 40, but only Luke quotes it in such extent. And he is telling us that John the Baptist now is that voice crying in the wilderness. 
and that John is fulfilling Isaiah's words. And so I want to think with you about, about what that means. That it, it is, what did, because what did John do? John was there to announce the coming of the Messiah, that, that Jesus was there. The kingdom of God has come. That tells us this means that the coming of Jesus is the supernatural highway that God is building to come to rescue us. The coming of Jesus is the glory of Yahweh being revealed for all flesh to see. The coming of Jesus is the salvation of God for all people to see. And applying it to Jesus, that means that we can then go look back at those passages in the Old Testament in Isaiah 62 and say that, see that those are about us as well, that I was in exile, I was lost, I was cast out, I was forsaken, and like them, rightly so, because of my sin. But he built a way for us. He built a highway to come and rescue us, and nothing can stand in his way. That Jesus came and lived the life that I could never live, and he died my death in my place, and he rose from the dead in victory. He gave his life to redeem me, to pave a way for us to walk on as the redeemed of the Lord back to safety. And he leveled mountains. He, he filled valleys. He paved a wide, stable road for us to walk on. Isn't that glorious? He wants us to see the certainty of the salvation that he accomplished. It's certain because he accomplished it. <laughs> He did it. He sought us out. He came to save us. And this is an invitation. What John is doing here is inviting people to believe. John is doing more than just saying the Messiah is coming. He's doing more than that. I used to think of that. When people would say that, the way I thought of it in my head was John was like a herald with a trumpet, like, bloop, bloop, like get out of the way, the king's coming. Get out of the way. Get yourself ready. Put on your Sunday best. He's coming. But that's not what he's saying, really. He's saying he's coming to save you. Believe in him. He's coming for you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was the summary of John's message. That's also the summary of Jesus' message. He says that the kingdom is here. Salvation is here. Believe. Turn from sin and believe. This is a call to, to, be, to be rescued. When we hear the words repent, that may sound harsh, but it's really not at all. <laughs> it is an invitation. It is an invitation to be saved. That is all that God requires. He says that God has made this supernatural way for you to be saved, to be forgiven, to have eternal life, to have a renewed world, to be reconciled with God, to be adopted into his family, to be his beloved, to be able to say, the Lord delights in me. And all that he asks of you is that you turn from sin, repent and accept this offer of salvation. Agree with God. Agree with God about your state, that you are in exile, that you are in rebellion against him. Agree with God that you need to be rescued. Agree with God that the pleasures of sin are fleeting and ultimately harmful and accept the offer of everlasting life with him. Agree with God that your religious efforts are hollow 
and inadequate, and we can never do enough. Tim Keller would always say, or I heard him say on a number of occasions, that there's three ways to live. We sometimes say there's two ways, but sometimes when we say there's two ways to live, believing in God and not, we think of that as like, people hear that as moral living and immoral living. But really, we need to remember that John the Baptist here is talking to religious people when he says repent. There is uh, immoral living, and there is religious living, and then there is gospel Christianity. He's calling us to repentance, not to, not to religion. And so, friends, he invites you this morning to accept this offer of salvation. Repentance is an invitation. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for you. He invites you today to receive it, to turn from sin, to turn towards Christ as your only and sure hope. The alternative is frightening. He says in verse 17 that the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It is urgent. He says, cry to her that her warfare is ended. The offer is out to you today to to turn and to believe in Christ. And brothers and sisters, repentance is how we continue to walk as believers in Christ. John the Baptist would also say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is how we start and repentance is how we continue, not just a one-time thing. As we continue to fall, we continue to turn towards Christ and we continue to grow in holiness as we trust in him because of his love for us, not to gain his love for us, but because of his love for us. And so the point of all of this, I want to say, is the certainty of the salvation that's offered to you. Back in Isaiah 40, the main point of all this, God took the initiative. God had the one with love for us, and he uh, was faithful to his promise. He accomplished it. He came to, to rescue us. And so I hope we think of this imagery as we think of the Christian life. We have a sure footing beneath our feet. Sometimes my kids and I, we go to the park and we play a game called Lava Monster where uh, the lava monster has to close his eyes and like walk around on the play structure and tag someone. It's frightening. (laughs) I've banged a shin more than once. Uh, But the, the Christian life is not like that like stumbling around in the dark, not, not sure where you're going. Or like Indiana Jones, the leap of faith, the bridge, the invisible bridge. That's not what it is. It is a wide, sure, safe road that Jesus has paved for us. Look at verse, um, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What word? This word of salvation it is sure, it is certain, we can have confidence. So take courage, brothers and sisters. He will come to save us. He has already paved the way. We're on the journey back. He is carrying us along, and he will bring us safely home. Like Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just as And and again, not exactly how maybe they had expected. It would come in two comings of Jesus. He came first to rescue us, and he will come again one day to finally save us. And what does this lead us to? Joy. 
the joy of salvation briefly, verses nine through 11. He says, go up on a high mountain, lift up your voice with strength. And this last section, it is now no longer the voice speaking, but it is the people speaking. He says, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, lift it up. Uh, This last section, the entire people of God now are proclaiming and crying out about God's salvation, rejoicing in him for what he accomplished for them. He says, behold your God, behold your God. He does not say, go serve the Lord. First, he says, behold your God, not go do anything. Like with the Red Sea, when God parted the Red Sea, he's like, stand back and watch. I'm gonna do something amazing. (laughs) And that's the same thing here. He says, stand back and watch. Behold, I come to save you. And so he's not asking for our help. Do a little more for Jesus. He's calling us to find our joy, find our satisfaction in him. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. He comes with might. He is a conquering king. He came to Babylon and he conquered to set us free. Christ faced up against the devil and won. Christ faced up against sin and won. Christ faced up against death and won. Every single thing that stands in the way of our joy and comfort for all eternity was defeated by Christ. He is our conquering king and he rose from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now he has a name that is above every other name and one day all knees will bow to Christ. He is our king. And we have this truth now in jars of clay, don't we? In this humble church building here that looks weak. But behold, he says, behold him in might. This is who he is. He will return one day. Behold him also in gentleness. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He's not just the conquering king, he is also the tender shepherd. He is both lion and lamb. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the king of all the universe, and he is the lamb that was slain for our sin. But here, the shepherd, instead, uh, he carries us in his arms. Do we contribute to that? Do your kids contribute to being carried? They don't, mine don't. I do all the carrying, did. Uh, Jesus says, that's, that's me. For G- John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then later in that, in that chapter, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that's the same picture here. He holds us in his hands. He carries us in his arms. Here again, the note of of, of certainty. It It is him who saves us, and that is what makes it certain. God is gentle. God is eager and generous and desirous 
to save. So we, the, we respond as the people here respond. We, we praise, we lift up our voice with strength. And we, we praise him, we proclaim him. He has come to save us, friends. He has come to save us. We ask sometimes, how long, O oh Lord? But he came. He came and he will come again. The path of his promise is not always straight, but, and we do not always see it clearly, but we, we can see that his promise is fulfilled in Christ. And we can know that he will bring it to completion when he returns. We, we often look around ourselves for some other sort of rescue, but Christ is the only rescue. I'd like to close with, with Hebrews. If you could turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, highway, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, the reality, and he goes on to say, the reality of the coming judgment is real and is terrifying, and yet he opened a way for us through his blood. He made the way clear. We can have confidence. So I ask you this morning, do you have confidence? Do you have confidence today in the promise of God in Christ? Draw near to God. Draw near to God with full assurance of faith because the way is clear. The way is certain. Do you, do you have your conscience sprinkled clean by his blood? Or are you trying to clean yourself with your own efforts? Get yourself ready, your own religiosity. It doesn't work. Only his blood can cleanse us. And if we trust in him, he will clean us. Are you weary this morning? Let us hold fast to his word. His word stands forever. It is full of riches. His word is true. It renews our minds. It changes our lives. It can change our families. Let us cast aside our doubts. Let us put our trust in his unfailing word. And let us stir up one another to love and good works. Because we are on the road together, the people, the holy people of the Lord, walking on the highway 
to glory. Let us encourage one another. Let us serve one another as the family of God. Let us lift up our voice with strength and proclaim his salvation because God has come to save us in Christ and nothing will stand in his way. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you.